Center for Bible Engagement, and they discovered something. When we're in the scripture four times a week, it literally spikes off the chart. Feeling lonely drops 30%. Anger issues drop 32%. Bitterness in relationships drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Viewing pornography drops 61%. Sharing your faith jumps 200%. And then discipling others jumps 230%. Good morning, Hill City. Give yourself a hand for making it out this morning. I'm so proud of you. Wow, I'm so grateful to pastor the coolest group of people on the planet. Turn to the person next to you and say, he said I was cool. That's, for some of you, that might be the first time you ever, no, just kidding. You're cool, man. Uh, if you're new to us, I'm Pastor Adam McCain. And um, one of the pastors here, uh, my wife and I are lead pastors here at Hill City, and we're grateful that you came here with us today. We also have a wonderful campus in Mansfield, Texas, uh, pastors Jonathan and Myrna pastor that campus, and, uh, and then of course we are got our eyes set on Arlington, we're believing for, uh, to launch a campus in Arlington, so uh, yeah, we're believing for miracles there, and uh, you know, most of the people who launch campuses are mega churches with thousands and thousands of people. Uh, we just see thousands and thousands of people going to hell, so we're just trying to figure out how to go love on them and reach them. And so we don't have all the resources to do maybe what some of the big mega churches do, but we just decided that we're going to make it hard to go to hell from wherever we're standing. And we got folks that live in Arlington, and we got, I have a heart for Arlington because for years I did ministry on UTA's campus. And, uh, and so I've got seed in that ground that I want to see some fruit from. So, so uh, if that was ever in your heart, you can come talk to some of our leaders afterwards and say, man, I've got something in my heart for that. So we'll be, and hopefully this year, maybe uh, getting something up and going in Arlington, getting small groups going right now, and then hopefully have a service uh, that we can do for the Arlington and kind of break some of that, uh, that stronghold over that city. And uh, it needs a good, healthy, multiracial church. It does, and uh, or more of them, let's say. I don't know all the churches in Arlington. but So we are in um, a series that we titled Rhema. Everybody say Rhema. Rhema. You can do better than that. Say Rhema. Rhema. And we pull the series from this key passage out of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Jesus, in speaking about a husband and a wife relationship, or excuse me, Paul, in speaking about a husband and wife relationship, he points to a dynamic of Christ and he says it like this, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And that word, word, is translated in the Greek, rhema. And, and so Paul is, speaks of the transformation process that happens to us as Christians. Uh, how many of you guys remember the moment you said yes to Christ? You said, yes, I want to be a Christian. Don't you remember how immediately you forgot how to roll a joint? You couldn't remember how to look for porn websites. You never cursed again. You never remember how that happened? Yeah, it didn't happen, did it? You're like, ah. Yeah, you made a decision for Christ, and it's like you were more wicked the next week after that than you were before, right? And the reason that is, and we kind of talked about that last week, because the moment you made a decision to follow Christ or follow the Holy Spirit... All temptation came at you like never before. Why? Because Satan wanted you back. And so you see this process of transformation. 
that Jesus literally is taking us day by day and transitioning us. And if you were, uh, if you watched our Cyber Sunday, our, our first Sunday of the year, January 1st, it was on a Sunday, so we pre-recorded this amazing service so that you could be at home with your family and watch it. One of the things that I kind of connected it to is we see a lot of people talking about transitioning. Uh, I'm completely opposed to it. The Bible is opposed to transitioning your gender. But the way that they're accomplishing that transitioning of your gender is by putting chemicals in people's bodies and things like that. And there is an effect, obviously. And uh, and so and so I kind of just made a, a, a tip of the hat to that concept of the way Jesus Jesus transitions us from the old wicked Adam McCain with all of my flesh, with all of my hatred, with all of my judgmentalism, with all of my you know pride and egotism and perversion and, and selfish and whatever. How he transitions me out of that is once I start following him, he then begins to input something into me that begins to change my DNA. And that's his word. That's why the Holy Scriptures are so important. And to kind of prove that, we found a, a statistical study, and it's always in the opening of each of these services. But I'd like to just kind of bring it back out to you. The, the Center for Bible Research um, uh, uh, did, excuse me, Center for Bible Engagement did research this last year with over 40,000 constituents. Christians who um, were from the age of 8 to 80, I believe, was, was, the, was the group. And, um, and they just asked them simple questions. How often do you read your Bible? What effect is it having on you? And they found that, um, that uh, the people who read their Bible once a week, maybe just even by going to church on Sunday, if they engaged in the Word in some type of way once a week, it, didn't really, it wasn't really changing them. Didn't mean that they weren't going to heaven, it just meant that they weren't really changing. They still had the same issues that they had prior to Christ, sometimes even more elevated, because now they're in church with a bunch of other weird people, and, uh, and now they think they're supposed to act holy, so now they're pretending to be holy when they're really not. And so, two times a week, just a little bit of a blip on the screen, three times a week, just, a, again, minuscule at best, but if they engaged in the Word four times a week, things begin to radically shift in those person's life. It's almost like the amount of medication they were taking. As they raised it a little bit, it actually had effect. And here's some of the statistics on it. Uh, the feeling of loneliness dropped 30% for people who began to engage with the Word of God at least four times a week, 30%. Uh, uh, anger issues, anger issues. You know, my pop's a redhead, so we understand about anger issues. Anger issues dropped 32%. 32%, unbelievable. Bitterness in relationships dropped 40%. Alcoholism, Christians, well, I know a lot of Christians that are alcoholics, dropped 57%. The feeling of being spiritually stagnant dropped 60%. Viewing porn dropped 61%. Starting to share your faith actually rose 200%. Because you're like, I was just reading the Bible and you got to hear this, bro. You're like, okay. And all of a sudden, their lives are being changed. Why? Because of four times a week engagement in the Word of God. Discipling others, which again, I keep telling you guys, this church lives and dies on whether or not you and I will disciple other people and be obedient to the great commandment that Jesus said, go and make disciples. It, it, it spiked up 230%. And so really, what we decided to do this year was we weren't going to just talk about the Word on Sundays and have these little paraphrased versions of Pastor Adam bringing it down to you, and that's the only engagement. That we would all commit as a church 
to go ahead and read the word every day. So what we did was we partnered with the Bible app, the version, and, um, and actually we'll put the QR, QR code up on the screen. And, um, and we just all committed to re- read our Bible daily in a digital format. And uh, so if you didn't sign up, you didn't know to do that, you hadn't really been with us, catch up now. You're, you're not that far behind. I promise you. I know my wife was so upset at me last week because I said, you know, sorry, Cajun. Anyway, I said, you know, you could catch up just by every time you go to the bathroom just reading the Bible while you were sitting on the pot. And Jamie was like, you can't say that. I was like, the throne? I mean, anyway, so she... She didn't like that, but, but seriously, you could literally catch up with us, you know, because it's just small passages of scripture, but it's that engagement that that rhema, everybody say rhema, and we've identified rhema as that word means more of like inspiration of understanding. It's like you get it. All of a sudden, you know, have you ever been sitting there and someone's been talking to and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, and then all of a sudden you go, I get it. And it's like, like algebra class, right? And then just one day it just clicked for you. Yeah, some of you never had that experience, right? So, but it's that moment where you, it's Ramus, like I get it, I understand it. And his ways and his thoughts all of a sudden start becoming your, your ways and your thoughts. Why? Because you're changing, you're being transitioned, you're being transformed by the washing of the word cleansing us and making us like him in our image and so what we said we would do during this series is each week we're reading these passages of scripture together and and we said that pastor jonathan and i would just pull out a portion of that and just kind of expand on it and uh and we were going to see if any of you guys were spiritual enough to be able to go i bet they preach preach on this one so i'm just kidding but anyway so we we decided to pull out and expand today in today's message from luke chapter 6 and verse 47 anybody think we're going to do that say just say yes you're he knew God told you. All right, good. See, you're becoming more like him, even just by reading the word with us. And so if you'll turn there quickly, we'll just kind of camp out for a few seconds at these first verses. Luke chapter 6, verse 47. He says, Jesus speaking is, I will show you what is like, what it what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. Everybody say well built. Verse 49, but the one who hears my words and do not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed. Everybody say collapsed. And its destruction was complete. And so Jesus says, he, he does his whole teaching and he, and he gives his word to his people and to the disciples and thereby to us. And then he summarizes it at the end of this set of communication. He goes, listen, the guy who listens to what I'm saying and puts it into practice, his end result will be when terrible things happen, he will withstand it. He'll still be standing. But the person who hears my words and don't put them into practice When that person comes into their time of difficulty, and guys, we all will have times of difficulty. Somebody say amen. Jesus said, in this life you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So we will all have difficulty. We'll all have a moment in our marriage where we go, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Well, I'll have a moment like, did we really give birth to these kids? Like, dude, should we... Should they be alive? Like, should we not end this whole fiasco now? You're always going to have these moments. Why am I working with these demonic people? Like, this, should I just burn the whole thing down? We're all going to have moments where we have these scenarios. Some, some it may be a diagnosis that is just horrifying. But we're all going to have moments of trouble. The question will be is when the torrent comes, will you still be standing? That's the question. And Jesus says, if you will take the rhema that I'm giving you and put it into practice. Everybody say, into practice. When I was um, 
when I was a young man, I played uh, peewee football, peewee baseball, and my goal as an adult was to be a professional baseball player. I was going to win the World Series while being an actor in Hollywood. I had it all figured out, or a comedian. And so, and so my mom and dad, we, we got saved, Pop got saved, we became a family, and Mimi and Pop figured out in the, in the early, early 80s that what all the cool Christians were doing was putting their kids in private Christian school. That was going to make them better. And so they said, well, we got to jump in on that deal. And so, you know, they basically, we no longer had any food to eat because they were paying for me to go to some little small private Christian school. And it was from there I, that I learned how to be wicked and carnal. It was awesome. But when I... Went to that school, you know, you're talking about a class of like, you know, the, the, my ninth grade class was about 30 kids, right, 30 students. And so, and so that school, I had been play, I'd played sports my whole life. I come to the school, and all they had was basketball. When Jesus was handing out giftings and callings, basketball was not going to be one for me, right? And so, and so, but at the same time, I'm an athlete, and I played a lot of sports, and so that, I was going to, you know, and they asked me, hey, we need you, we don't have enough boys to play if you don't, and so, so I played, you know, uh, you know, eighth, we went there in eighth grade, so I played eighth grade basketball, didn't know what the game was, couldn't figure out why you couldn't tackle somebody and take the ball from them, bunch of sissies, you got the ball, I got it now, what's the problem? Yes, you're bleeding, but you should have put a helmet on. Like, I didn't get the concept of basketball, and so for the first few years, the people who coached those teams were people who didn't, had never played basketball either. So it was pretty embarrassing at the, every time we had a game how bad we were and how much we didn't know. And I was super fast. I would outrun the ball. I mean, I just couldn't dribble it. And, uh, and I was so fast and my mind moved so fast that if I passed it to you, I probably was going to hit you in the face because you didn't see it coming. And, I, and, I, and it was in the 80s, early 80s, so all the cool moves and all. I was trying to figure all those things. I just was not a good basketball player until my 11th grade year. My 11th grade year, we got a brand new coach. He had actually played for LSU. He had been a walk-on point guard for LSU and played in, a, I think he played in one of the championships. I mean, just phenomenal. He, he, was, he became one of my great mentors. You know, five, seven, short, black man, Don Green, mighty man of God, loved Jesus, and old school, like old school. And so... We were so excited because now we're going to start winning games. He's going to have some plays. He's going to coach us on some techniques because our problem is techniques. And we get in there, and the first day, for three hours, the first day of practice, all we did was run and run and run. We thought, okay, no big deal. Second day, all we did was run and run and run. If you don't know, run in the hash marks and the quarter marks and all these kind of things. And we ran and we ran and we ran. And we were like, well, all right, this is starting to suck. And the third day, he changed it up. All we did was push-ups and sit-ups. And then we did wall squats for however many hours. And just every day for the next two weeks, he never brought out a basketball. We never touched a basketball. Then we did the step-slide defensive for two days straight. I could not touch my inner thigh for a week. Oh, my Jesus. And I was only a 4% body fat at the time. And so, and so I, muscles that I did not know that I had were hurting. I was hurting in places. Well, this went on for two weeks, three weeks. Never touched a basketball. Never ran a play. Never taught us how to shoot better. Never once into it. And can, you, can I just tell you, by the third week, all the seniors are like, I didn't sign up for this. I don't need this trash. This guy's an idiot coach. 
I don't want to be a part of this. We were all talking about a revolt against this guy. And I'll never forget, he got us all out in a circle. Because, you know, he knew it was coming. He knew what he was doing. And he got us in the circle. And he did that Denzel Washington. Oh, so you got something to say. Hmm. Well, say it. Say it. <laughs> Nobody wanted to talk up. Oh, you think that you know what you're doing. And so, uh, and so after, about, after about 30 minutes of staring at the floor, finally someone was stupid enough to say, this ain't basketball. This is a beatdown. I ain't signing up for no beatdown. And then he unleashed on us. You know what your problem is? You don't know the game. See, the game's not won in the first quarter or the second quarter. Not even one in the third quarter. It's one in that fourth quarter. And we're going to be a team that when everyone else can't run anymore, we're going to run circles around them. We're going to full court press in the fourth quarter. We're going to run and gun when they can't even call their plays anymore. And so you thought that was hard? You better get ready. And for the next three, four weeks, again, nothing but drills, 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 drills. Because he had come to the understanding or the conclusion that drills develop skills. Drills develop skills. And that we would still be standing when everyone else couldn't even breathe. And I'll never forget one of the first tournaments we played in. We walked in and there was the giant team. Like, dang, everybody can dunk. Good Lord, we are about to lose. And he got us in that hole, and he said, let me tell you something. See that boy with all them muscles? Them muscles going to get him. Fourth quarter, he won't be able to run anymore because we're going to run him and run him and run him. We were down by 20 points going into the fourth quarter, and that's when we kicked in. They couldn't breathe anymore, and we were just running it, fast breaking, pushing against them. We came back and won it by two points right at the buzzer, and we were like looking at him like, oh, Obi-Wan, the wisdom that you possess. <laughs> The drills created the skills, and in the fourth quarter, when they had nothing left to go on, we were still going. Are you with me today? Say yes. Jesus said, the man who takes what I'm teaching you and begins to drill it, begins to put it into practice, when the difficult moments come, they will have the kind of strength that caused them not to fall or to falter. One of my mentors passed away a couple weeks ago now. Larry and Debbie Titus are some heroes to me in the faith. Great pastors, leaders, apostles, phenomenal. Uh, and about a year or so ago, Debbie, his wife, was diagnosed with cancer. People of faith. And I believe it's been about a year now. My details may be off. And I'll never forget, I actually did a podcast with her, and, uh, and she never even talked about the cancer. She was weak. She had a hard time finishing the podcast. She never talked about it as in it was killing me or anything like that. She mentioned it. She said, yes, it's been difficult, but every day I step up in faith and I keep going for Jesus, and we're going to get through this thing. And she never put herself as being healed or not healed. She just said, every day I'm going to serve Jesus, and I'm not going to look back, and I'm going to make my time count. She passed away. She, she passed away just 
after Christmas this last year, just a few, few days ago. And they actually, at her funeral, they had video footage of the family that had all been around the, uh, the table with her for Christmas dinner. And every one of them, and she sat there at that table, is beautiful and is strong. You wouldn't have known that she only had days to live. And she sat there and she encouraged every one of them, you take what God's put in your hands and you do something great with it. You don't worry about what you don't have. You just keep pushing for Jesus. And she just really preached around. The, I mean, you're talking about 20 kids and their grandchildren and great-grandchildren around this big table. And they showed the footage at her funeral just days <clears throat> after she had passed, just days earlier before she passed. She had just, just encouraged them and strengthened them. And then her husband gets up and he goes, I'm so proud of my wife, phenomenal. Let me play this instead of me saying anything. I see him a couple of days later. And he goes, hey, Adam, when are we going to do that podcast? And I was like... You, you just lost your wife. He goes, she's in the arms of the Lord now. Let's get this thing done. Let's knock this thing out. And in that moment, I recognize something, what I'm teaching you today, and that is there are those who have so taken his words and practiced them and drilled them that when the tough things of life come, they are not shaken, they are not beat down, they are not destroyed, and they will not collapse. Versus others, right? Versus others that I've had in my life that the moment that something difficult came to them, they threw their hands up and said, God, you're not real, and I can't do this anymore, and they walked off. Why? Because they never drilled down. They never did the drills to get the strength to handle the tough times. Are you with me today? Say yes. So prior to Jesus saying this in Luke chapter 6 and verse 47, backing up to the verses above that, he gives us the drills. You ready for the drills? You're not going to like them. I don't. Don't like them at all. First time I read them, I'm like, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. But this is what Christianity is. But these are the drills. I'm calling these the seven drills. Are you with me today? Say yes. I'm calling these the seven drills. Actually, let, before I give them to you, let's just read it. Verse 27 of Luke chapter 6, I'll read it all to you, and then I'll come back and break them down. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Jesus. Do good to those who hate you. Jesus. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, they're going to get a black eye. Turn to him, the other also. If someone takes your car, give them your motorcycle. No, what? If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Verse 30. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom, ex whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. Because, oh, I don't like anything of this next verse. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. I am not kind to the ungrateful. Now, I don't have any patience for people who are ungrateful. I, got, I need some practice. Ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Verse 37, do not judge and you'll not be judged. Do not condemn and you'll not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it'll be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will pour into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
I do not like these drills. But I want to be like Jesus. And I want to have unshakable strength for when the tough times come upon me and my family. So let's break them down. He starts number one, verse 28. He says, love your enemies. Jesus. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' time taught the passage out of the Old Testament said, love thy neighbor. But what they had come to the fact is that your enemy was not your neighbor. So you had to love your neighbor was what the Jewish rabbis of Jesus' time taught. But you did not have to love your enemies because they're your enemies. And Jesus turns this whole thing upside down. And he says, whoa, 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 I teach you, love your enemies. If you'll do this drill, then when the torrents come and the floods come and the, and, and the wickedness attacks you, you won't fall apart. If you'll love your enemy. Now, can I just encourage you in these drills? I don't think Jesus expects all of us to get them all right all the time. Because if that's the case, i got to stop pastoring. I, I think what he's done is he's laid out the drills that will give us those muscles for the fourth quarter. Are you with me? Say yes. That he's given us the drills that is, I mean, he lived in this space. He, we are his followers. So, 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 so chasing after him and being like him is the real goal. And, and his rhema begins to rework our, our DNA. And so as we, as we say, okay, I'm going to put into practice what your word says, begins to rework the old Adam McCain. Because loving my enemies is not how I live my life. Hating my enemies is how I lived my life. In fact, I felt justified about it. You became my enemy. I'm a nice guy. I'm nice to everybody. If you decide you want to be my enemy, you're sure not going to get my love, much less any kind of affection that I would have, have to pour out. I'm going to pour it out on you. I would never do that. Love your enemies. In fact, it was a very difficult statement in his time. In fact, two of the guys on Jesus' team, they were radicals against the Roman government, James and John, sons of thunder. And the Romans, as We've said multiple times here, in this time frame, they had been a conquering power. They had conquered most of the little small countries of their era. It's how they got rich. It's how they became a power. It's why you still know about them and read, teach our kids about them as one of the world powers throughout history. And when you go and study ancient history, you study all about the Romans and their effects on society even today. And they, and they, were, and they were ruthless conquerors. And they conquered and then they had an expectation that you abided by their ways of living. And if you didn't, they just kill you. They don't need to argue with you about it. And so the Jews, to be able to survive, submitted, and they hated it. And there was a whole group of Jewish nationalists that's like, we need to overthrow the Romans. Well, they don't, you don't have the power to overthrow the Romans. So then they turned to their religious beliefs that the Messiah would come one day, and he would give them the power to overthrow the Romans. That was their prevailing ideology of what was going to happen in life. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, and immediately he's not militant, it had to have shaken James and John. They're just shaking. I'm like, what are you talking about? Love our enemies? We're not going to love the Romans. We hate the Romans. We want the Romans to die. A wise man in one of his great speeches said it like this one time. He said, I'm concerned about a better world. I'm concerned about justice. I'm concerned about brotherhood and sisterhood. I'm concerned about truth. And when one is concerned about that, he can never advocate violence. For through violence... You may murder a murderer, but you can't murder murder. Through violence, you may murder a liar, but you can't establish truth. Through violence, you may murder a hater, but you can't murder hate through violence. Darkness cannot put out darkness. Only light can do that. And I say to you, I've always, excuse me, I have also decided to stick with love. 
For I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems. And I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about it in some circles today. And I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. For I have seen too much hate. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. And I've decided to love. For if you're seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we aren't moving... <clears throat> excuse me. And the beautiful thing is that we aren't moving wrong when we do it. Because John was right. God is love. He who hates does not know God. And he who loves has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. That wise man was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He gives this speech and makes this statement. Probably already aware that there were so many that hated him as he was trying to bring unification. As he was trying to bring justice to injustice. The man who stood in that space. We celebrate him this Monday. Here's this man who's willing to lay down his life. To even speak to groups of people who were like, we've got to fight hate with hate. And he said, it won't work. He said, it won't work. Because even if you kill the hater, you can't kill the hate. If you kill the liar, it doesn't establish truth. So I've established myself and I've decided that with love is how I'm going to live. Because hate is just too big of a burden to carry. He understood this truth, and I think the only way he was able to live it is because he had practiced it, and practiced it. And when he was belittled, and when he was imprisoned wrongly, and when he saw friends and black folks murdered, he chose love because he knew that hate was not going to get him there. And he understood this great truth because he had drilled down in that practice time, he had practiced when he was a child understanding love and giving love to those who didn't deserve it. It is, as the Bible calls it, the greatest commandment. It is the greatest commandment to love the Lord our God. And the second greatest is to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Jesus said, here's a practice that I'm going to give you. Love your enemies. <laughs> Anybody can love those who love them. You're not doing nothing with that. Sinners do that. But love your enemies. I would imagine that someone in that moment, maybe afterwards, privately came and pulled Jesus out and said, Who do, Who's my enemy? How do I know who's my enemy? I don't know how Jesus answered that question, but I would imagine for each and every one of us, it's a little more easier to answer, and that is anybody we perceive as an enemy. So, Pastor, I didn't make them my enemy. They made me an enemy. I didn't do anything. Well, great. Then love them. That's the practice drill. Love them and continue to love them. I know, I don't like it either. But I want you to be able to stand when they diagnose you with cancer. I want you to be able to stand and still be there whenever something tragic comes against your family. That you have such strength, like Larry and Debbie Titus, that it stiffens every Christian around you to watch you walk through difficulty with grace and mercy and with confidence that God will never leave me or forsake me because I have put into practice the drills that he asked me to. The second one 
It's not any easier in verse 28. He says, do good to those who hate you. Have you ever said, they just hate me over there. They just hate me. Well, he actually puts it into practice. It's almost ethereal about the first one with love. I mean, how, how do I, what does love look like? You know, what's love? You know, I mean, but in this one, he puts it real practical. He goes, go ahead and just do good to those who hate you. In other words, find an action and follow through with it to those who hate you. You and I would never do that. We would, we would stop following them. We would, you know, we would, you know, get them, uh, cut them off of our social media. We would, uh, we'd find another job. We, you hate me, so I don't want to be here either. You know, you know, my wife and I, may, uh, you know, I may have married into your family, but you hate me, and so I hate you too, so Christmas ain't going to be fun. But that's what he tells us to do. He says, drill down. Start practicing this. He says, start practicing doing good to those who hate you. He says, for he is kind, even to the ungrateful and the wicked. So who our God is, is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Those who say, I don't want you, I don't care about you, I throw my middle finger up, he's kind to them. He's kind to them. That's why it always blows my mind that Christians can't be kind to people who don't love God. When God is kind to people who don't love him. I mean, it's like, I know, he, I know he loves you, and I know he's merciful with you, but I'm not. And I represent him. <laughs> you know, like, mm. that's where the breakdown's at. It's, it's always, over the years of pastoring, it's always been fun to have different ones in the congregation that were so righteous and so self-righteous that they love to go and, and, and go stomp out unrighteousness in people. Pastor, I told them, you wicked. You wicked. And it's, and I, it's always like, you know, I really think you should practice number two in Luke 6, uh, verse 28, and that is to do good to those who hate you. Verse th- uh, number th- uh, the third one is in, also in verse 28. He says, bless those who curse you. That's a good practice drill. That's it. Do that while you're driving through Walmart parking lot and someone almost backs into you. And then they start throwing their hands up and roll down the window. You blank and blank and blank. And you say, oh, I bless you. I bless you. I like your car. How wonderful is God's plan for your life? I declare his favor and his anointing over you. First time I did that, I felt just like that. And then the person got mad. <laughs> oh, you're being patronizing, huh? Like, know what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is to keep hitting these hash marks. What I'm trying to do is not stab you in the throat right now. What I'm trying to do is be still standing when the bad things come. I'm trying to build up some strength here to be like my Jesus. Bless those who curse you. Do you know what the word actually, the word bless, actually translates out in the Greek? It actually translates to speak well of. <laughs> Mm. I do not do this well. I don't. Because when I see stupidity, I almost feel like it's my job <laughs> to help you stop being stupid. And since you won't listen, I got to tell everybody else how stupid you are, unless your stupidity affects them. Mm. 
or what the Bible calls gossip or slander. Can you imagine if you and I started blessing those who at work have sent that mass email to everyone trying to make us look bad? There's a lot of practice to be done. I'll tell you that right now. Bless those who curse you. See, the common practice in Jesus' day really was to put curses on people who were opposing you. They literally would put curses on people. I mean, you see that coming out of Mexico, you know, with the whole Santeria thing. Literally putting curses on people who oppose you or don't, uh, who, who's, quote, your enemy or whatever. And, and so Jesus flips that again as well. And he goes, listen, we're not going to do that. We're actually going to bless them. We're going to speak life over them. Speak life over them. Like, I ain't speaking life. They need to die. He says, no, no, that's not what we're going to practice speaking life. And so that's why we do that every Sunday. We have you lift one hand and we speak life over you. Because we know how much curses have been spoken over you. So we want to reverse those just by speaking. You say, man, y'all pray a lot. Yeah, because we're trying to reverse some things that you've experienced all throughout the week. We do it on purpose. Very strategic. Very biblical. That's why we do it. Then, then the fourth one. <laughs> pray for those who mistreat you. Anybody in the room have like a, a prayer list, like a, things that you pray for, you have it written down, or maybe you have it digitally? Anybody? Okay, one Christian, two Christians, thank you, already three. Good job. See? Notice what that was. It was all ladies <laughs> who are happy <laughs> and who keep preaching back at me all sermon. I just want you to know. I want you to know who the mature people in the room are. No, I'm just kidding. I'm messing with all you guys. But, but they have, someone taught them over the years, things that you're believing for, write it down and pray over it every day, right? He's literally telling us, Write down the people who are mistreating you and pray for them every day. That's his fourth in verse, in verse 28. He says, pray, put their names on your prayer list. Hey, guys, we just really need to pray. Uh, we need to pray for Bill at work. Oh, my goodness, is, is something wrong? Did he go through a car accident? Oh, no, no, no. He just hates me. He keeps trying to get me fired. We just need to pray for him and just intercede that God's best would come to him. It's like, oh. Well, come on, brother. We'll pray with you about that. Like, can you imagine practicing that? I mean, that one right there. For me, that's like, oh, 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 I might get two days into it. And then like, oh, okay, we got, we got to walk that one off for a little bit. Let's walk it off because I can't pray for that joker no more. You know, did you see that text message? Oh, my Jesus, I'm going to kill him. Anyway, so pray for those who mistreat you. Number five, do not retaliate. Verse 29, do not retaliate. I just summarized that piece, but do not retaliate. That's, that's the fifth drill. I mean, can, do not retaliate. If they slap you upside the face, turn and give them the other cheek. Ooh, that is not how I was raised. Do not, do not retaliate. So let me tell you how I, well, what became my ideology in life. If you did me wrong, I would not respond in that moment because I'm bigger than you. Like, whatever. What I would then go do is I would plot how to kill you <laughs> or make you wish you were dead. I would. And so it would be this days, weeks, and I even was real manipulative about it, especially before I was a Christian. I would act like we were friends again. That's demons right there. I'm going to tell you that right now. Some kind of Santa Maria was in Cajunville back in the day. <laughs> uh, Santa Maria. And, uh, and so I would. I'd plan your demise. I'll never forget. Uh, and I've told this before. A kid who, you know, he, he, uh, he did something to me. And I uh, waited for a couple of days. And after school, I caught him in the back of the head with a brick. 
and stood over him and said, if you ever touch me again. He thought we were good. We weren't good. I planned the retaliation. And I just, I, so that, the Lord literally had to deliver me from that. He had to set me free. That is not like Jesus. <laughs> and I was a Christian at some point and still had retaliation tendencies. Are you with me? Like, it just didn't go away. I didn't stop that. And so I literally had to practice the drill, the drill of do not retaliate. I mean, if, if any, any of you guys that are on TikTok, one of the big things on TikTok right now is all these people posting about their neighbor wars. About, you know, my neighbor keeps throwing their trash over my fence, so today I'm going to get them back. I've been collecting it for a year. And I'm going to throw it all in their pool. Ha, 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 They took my Trump sign. Now I'm going to burn down their house. Watch this. I mean, crazy. It's really popular on TikTok, by the way. And they, I think they, like, hashtagged it, Neighbor Wars or something like that. It's amazing how much wickedness are in us. And many of these guys are that are in these neighbor wars, it's funny to see their next post that they're at church. <laughs> He's still got a lot of transitioning to do in all of us. He's got to reform us a good bit. And so here's number six, verse 29 and 30. He says, basically, he says, give freely. Give freely. So this was a big practice for me. Um, when you don't have a whole lot, you don't give a whole lot, right? Just a mentality, a poverty mentality. And so for me, my mentality growing up was I had to, we had to work for everything we had. We had to work hard for everything we had. And we were always behind everybody else that seemed to have better jobs and have more money. And, and we were just always working really hard. And so anytime I saw someone in need, my advice to them was get a job. Which is what the Bible says, by the way. You know, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And in Jesus' time, that was pretty much kind of the the staple concept as well among Jews, especially Jews with Jews. But Jesus is actually hitting something that is colloquial for the time and very specific for the time. See, in their time frame, um, because they were taxed so high, they had a 10% tax with the temple tax, they had a 10% tax for, uh, with the Jews, and then they had another 10% tax with the Romans. So they were up to 30% taxation. So what would happen was small business owners just couldn't survive. And if they had a bad year, and I'm not talking about small businesses like us, think they're agricultural. And so, you know, if you lost your one bull, he died of something, you ain't got no way with all your cows to make babies anymore. So you're the death of your herd. And you're also strapped because you don't have any, any money, and no one's going to give you a loan because you had already defaulted on your last loan. And so literally in the marketplace, people would stand and beg. Good people, not people who didn't want to work, not people who didn't even have a small business, but people who did not have the ability to continue going because they needed something. They needed a micro loan. They needed, look, if you'll just, if you'll loan me uh, 150 bucks, I can buy enough seed to plant in this garden that I have. We'll have a return on it and I'll pay you back with interest. And Jesus literally tells them, don't even pay them back with interest. He's saying, give freely, give freely, give freely. And I don't know about you, but that's, that has been one of the difficult things for me. So when the Lord started really drilling down on that with me, it, can, it came to a head one time when he asked me to give a car away to a, a single lady in our church. I'm like, Lord, surely you don't mean me. You mean one of the wealthier folks in our church needs, I need to go to them and tell them to help this lady. He goes, no, you give that car that you have and give the better one because my in-laws had handed me down a car and 
it was a miracle, and then my car was beat up, and I was going to give her my beat-up car then, and the Lord said, no, no, give her the better one. And that was where it really came to a head for me. And once I got that drilled down, now Jamie and I are so, Jamie was always free in it. She always walked in freedom in this area. But for me, it was a stronghold. It was a real stronghold to give. The concept of tithing, why does the preacher need my money? That's where I started. And then as I ran through scripture and I grew in God, I started realizing, wait, 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 wait. God uses this as a test to open up my heart. Because he says, if you give freely, he says, I will then be sure that it's given back to you. It's my economy. My economy is I need you right now to do that and give to that person. I need you to be faithful to tithing to your church because I want to expand your church. I want to get more people because your DNA is good and I want to reproduce this DNA all throughout Cedar Hill, Mansfield, Duncanville, DeSoto. I want this DNA propagated so I need you to give. And as you give into that, I will be sure that what your needs are, are, are met and supernaturally giving comes to you. Through others and other situations, promotions, and and I've seen the Lord do that with Jamie and I over and over. Every one of our little small business, he just blesses it and blesses it and blesses it. And again, I get it. I hear the preachers and they make it this like, you know, you give and you'll get and you'll give and you'll But Jesus is telling us one of the practice pieces is to give freely, even to those who don't deserve it. The other day, one one of our team comes driving up, middle of the day. I think it was early summer this year, if I, if I remember. the, And there's a man standing there loading up the youth's basketball goal into his truck. And about to drive off. Our staff member drives him and says, uh, excuse me, what are you doing? He goes, uh, taking the basketball goal? Why are you taking the church's basketball goal? Well, I just bought it. You just bought it? Who'd you buy it from? That young man who's running off in the woods right there? <laughs> really? He goes, yeah, yeah, I, I just bought it on OfferUp right here. See, it's for sale. Which is brilliant, right? That kid is so brilliant. <laughs> Put your stuff for sale on OfferUp. Wait till you're not there. Show up and go, yeah, all right, just give me cash. And then, you know, I'll, I'll cut it half price for you, sir. Half price. Yeah, just drive off, you little thief, because you're the thief now. I'm the guy who just uh, you made a donation to my ministry. Anyway, so, so, so we like... That guy does not represent the church. We are not selling our basketball goal. Our staff members like, sir, I'm sorry. You're going to have to put that back. You got robbed. And you don't want us to call the cops on this, do you? No, it ain't worth it. It ain't worth the 50 bucks. I'll just take the loss. And he drove off. Put it back. Put our basketball goal back. So now, you know, you see the chains all around our little $50 basketball goal. It's like, let's give it away. So then our controllers, the kid in the youth room, the, the little video controllers went missing. And so, because we had had this experience weeks earlier, we thought, let's look on offer up. And there they were on offer up. And the young man lives two streets over, right there. And so, our youth director, Cohen, contacts him and says, man, I'm interested in these uh, controllers. The guy was like, yeah. He goes, you know where that church is, Hill City? He goes, well, I can find it. He goes, yeah, I usually do most of my sales in their parking lot just as a safe place. He goes, really? Well, let's meet there. Let's do that. So he meets the kid, and he's got one of our other leaders with him. <laughs> and, and, and he's 16-year-old, I guess. I think that's how they explain it. Son, if you're sitting here today, let me finish your story, and we'll talk afterwards. But anyway, and uh, <clears throat> he'd come over to our youth service on a Wednesday night, and I guess when nobody was looking, he stole all the controllers, right? And he's selling them. And, and so my son says, 
do you recognize me? And the guy was like, no. He goes, I'm the, I'm the youth minister here. The guy's like, oh, okay. He goes, these are our controllers that you stole from us. He puts his head down. He said, what are you doing? The guy just begins to say, I just need money. He's a 16-year-old. I'm sure he wanted to buy something, some shoes or something. He goes, son, you're going to end up in jail. You know, if we call the police right now and press charges against you, you don't want that on your record. He wasn't even a good thief. You know, he's like, like, don't show up at the place you stole it from, stupid. <laughs> like, we need to coach this guy. <laughs> Those of us, you know, anyway, so, <laughs> hey, man, come here. Let me help you with that. That's a bad plan. But Cohen and, and this other youth minister, youth leader in our team said, you know what? We want to pray with you. They prayed with him right there. Got the controllers back. They said, here's what we want to do. We're going to give you some money. We're going to give to you freely. Because you know what? God would give to you. And he loves you. Man, you got to stop this. Sorry. The guy sat there and cried. They prayed with him. They released him from the debt of needing to be accountable for it. Gave him a little bit of money. And in Jesus' name, stopped his crime spree. They're practicing that in their early 20s. We need to practice giving freely. It's like, you know, the Bible says, why not be taken advantage of to show love to another? And then the last one that he tells us is basically treat others the way you want to be treated in verse 31. Treat others the way you want to be treated. I want you to ask yourself a question. Have I treated people recently in a bad way? Have I not had grace in letting them tell the whole story before I just cut it off and said, that's not really what you were doing. What you were doing was this. Have I treated others the way I want to be treated? Um, a couple months ago, I was ministering in Columbia, and I brought Adeline, my youngest daughter, with me. She's 15. And so, because, you know, I've done a lot of travel over the years, what we do typically is we buy the window seat and the aisle seat, and typically no one wants to sit in the middle seat. So then we'll have the whole row to ourselves. That's typically what we do. And so <clears throat> we were flying to Columbia. We went through Miami, then into Columbia, to Cali, Columbia. A couple hours to Miami and then a couple, uh, four hours or so into Columbia. And so we're sitting there. We get on, you know, the flight. We've got our stuff. In, and we ended up being three rows from the, from the bathroom. I'm still fussing at our team about that. Like, come on, man. It's a long ride. Put me by the bathroom. And so, and so we're sitting there. And uh, the whole plane fills up like American Airlines loves to do. And then here she comes, sweet lady. She's probably about 28 years old, and she's got about a 13, 14-month-old with her. She's got the bag, she's got this bag, she's got this kid, and she's, trying, she's hitting everybody with everything, coming down the aisle. I mean, it looks like, oh, it's like Tasmanian devils. <laughs> pow, bing, pow, pow, coming down. I'm like, Jesus, I'm looking at that middle seat, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, Jesus, there is no other seat back here but this one. And they have sold this woman a ticket of a middle seat with a newborn, or not even a newborn. I wish it was newborn. We'd just, you know, give them Tylenol with coating and knock them out. But anyway, this one's, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't post that. And so, um, and so I'm thinking, Lord Jesus, here comes this. And I all of a sudden get so angry. I'm like, I've got to hit the ground preaching and being anointed. <sighs> as soon as they pick me up, i got to go preach and be anointed. And now i got this mess. 
I will not get any rest. I won't be able to do anything. I'm going to have throw up all over me and sippy cup stuff all over me. I'm going to have Cheerios stuck to every part of my body by the time this plane ride is over. And the closer she gets, and I'm thinking, I'm, she's got to sit in the middle. She was the dummy to buy the middle seat. I mean, I am not. And the closer she gets, I just hear this. That. That, that verse. Treat others as you would want to be treated. And all of a sudden, I had this mental picture. I'm going to have daughters that have children one day. And maybe those girls' husbands are going to be somewhere that they've got to go to them. And maybe they have to grab the last seat on a stinking plane ride and take their new child to be with daddy. And nobody's there to help them. I surely don't want them to sit next to some jerk who has no grace and no mercy and all they care about is themselves. So I was like, hey, sweetheart, um, how about you take the aisle seat and that way you can have a little bit more room. And she didn't speak English real well. She must have been from Colombia. She's like, oh, gracias, gracias, gracias. I was like, oh, no problem. I'm a minister of the gospel. <laughs> I am holy <clears throat> and willing to sacrifice my well-being for you. <clears throat> it sounded so cool when I first did it, but two hours into this flight, when this kid has kicked me the 250th time, and, and she's wiped spit up from her face, and she's, because, <clears throat> she, you know, she's like 14 months old. This kid was just like starting, she got teeth now, so everything's making her cry, and I'm, my nerves are frayed. And thank God I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit with a prayer language. I just started praying in tongues under my breath, praying in tongues. And Adlon's over there sleeping nicely across the window, <laughs> having such a great life. And it was in that moment I said, Jesus, thank you for the practice drill of being like you so that when tough times come. And then Jesus ends that whole piece, this whole seven pieces. He ends with this piece about, which is kind of crazy, about sowing and reaping. He goes, if you give mercy, you'll receive mercy. If you give judgment, you're going to receive judgment. He says, if you give condemnation, you're going to receive condemnation. All the way in verse 34, uh, 35, uh, 6 and 37. And he goes, and if you give, it's going to give back to you. And then he makes this statement. So, so he says, all of these, these drills that I'm trying to teach you to do. He says, if, you'll do, if you do them with a bad attitude, if you, do, if you do this, if you don't show mercy, you're not going to get mercy. I'm trying to teach you an, a universal principle of sowing and reaping. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap it. If you're wicked to people, they're gonna, you're going to get that back some kind of way. It's going to happen. Before all these false religions tried to come up with karma, Jesus and the Holy One had already created in the universe this sowing and reaping concept. It's, it's a law of the universe. God himself created it. And Jesus, uh, he highlights it there at the end of all these drills that he gives us so that we can practice, so that we can build strength, so that we'll be still running in the fourth quarter when the enemy finally gives up fighting against us and, and just tired of attacking us anymore because we're still standing. He gives up and says, never mind, let's give up on this one. And we go ahead and we win by two. When we're in that moment, it's because the pain of it says, I, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And he says, keep sowing because if you sow it, you'll reap it. If you sow mercy, you'll reap mercy. And I don't know about you. But there have been people I just had a hard time being merciful with. I've just had a hard time, like, you don't deserve mercy. 
Not, and, and, and literally, Jesus is rebuking us in that and saying, show, give mercy, you'll get mercy. And, and, and if, you show, if, if you sow condemnation, you're going to get condemnation. If, you, if you're so judgmental of everybody else, it's going to come back on you. And then he makes this little statement. For whatever measure you measure out with, whatever you give, whatever measure, that's the measurement that will be given back to you. You know, brother... I'm going to be merciful with you today because of how mean you've been. There's my mercy. Friend, wait till you're in that situation. And you're in, you've done it. You got pulled over. You were speeding. And you don't understand those cops. Can't you get a little bit of mercy? Come on. It was only 25 miles an hour over. I don't get it. And the Bible says literally, whatever measuring spot, whatever bit that you measure out will be measured out back to you. That's why he says, so be liberal with your mercy. Be liberal with your love so that you can receive it liberally back. And he says, it'll literally be like pressed down, shaken together, running over. You'll have more than you can handle. He says, if you'll be liberal with your love, you'll be liberal with your giving, you'll be liberal with your kindness, you'll get that. Have you ever met those people? I mean, everybody loves pop. Drives me insane. Like, pop, they love you more than they love me. Because pop doesn't show love like this. He shows love like this. He doesn't have a birthday. He has a birth month. Mimi's always like, oh my God, how many more times are we going to get taken out to eat because it's Pop's birthday month? Why? Because he, he gives it liberally, right? He just, just pours it out on you. He just gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. And Jesus said, you'll receive that back. Press down. Our first year of marriage, Jamie and I was working at a mega church, and we were just assistant youth pastors, and, you know, we were like interns, basically. Our, my pay was like $800 a month, and I lived at an apartment on the church property, almost like the security guard, you know, shack, and, um, and so I always had to go turn off and turn lights off and that kind of stuff was also a part of my job description, and so of my $800, they charged me $350 to live in their apartment. I tied $80 off the $800, you tracking with me? By the time it came down to being married and having a little and paying my car insurance and uh, my beeper bill, <laughs> millennials. Before there were uh, anyway, it's not worth the time. <laughs> and so, before I before I had all that, before once all that was paid, my responsibilities, the things I committed to, there was about this much money left for food, and uh, I didn't grow up with a lot, so. We were used to it, um, and, uh, and my mother-in-law kept trying to finance me. I'm like, you got to let me finance myself. She loves me so much. I'm like, no, we're not taking your credit card and going buying stuff, and, uh, <clears throat> which my spoiled rich wife was used to. I was like, no, you're going to live at the poor level with the rest of us chickens around you. I'm just kidding. She, she didn't know. But we had a food pantry on, on our property that people in need could come every day, and and we had like almost like a little food pantry and you could get groceries. Well, once a week, 
the little ladies there who knew how bad off Jamie and I were, they would wait for us to come to get some food because we literally didn't have enough food to eat. And uh, it was good. We were skinny, but it was, um, we were hungry. And, uh, and, so, and, and so it's a little embarrassing because we work at a mega church. We're not, we don't want to try to prove the point that they should pay us more. That's what we agreed to. We didn't know we were ignorant. And, um, and so it just is what it is. And I think it was because the Lord was teaching me even what I'm sharing in this moment. And we would go over there and the little ladies, they would say, they didn't judge us. They didn't say, Pastor Adam, can't you do better than this? You should not be taking food from the real poor people in this city. They recognized we, were, we didn't have any food either. And they would always take these little bags, these little bags, and they would say, you need some of that. And they could pile some more. Because they could only give two bags away. You can, each, each family could only get two bags. And they would get, and they push them on her back. No, don't tell nobody. Okay, baby, don't tell nobody right there. Don't tell nobody. And she, you know what? You need some meat too, don't you? You need, we just got some beef in. You want some of that beef? Yes, ma'am. Anything you got. Yes, ma'am. Anything you just take, anything. And you got to understand, if you've never been to a food pantry, many times the cans, you don't know what's in the cans because the labels are all off. So you don't know if you're getting peaches. Or beans, you have no idea. And then, you know, you hope it's beans, but it really was peaches, which makes a great, uh, it, it's not a good dish. Let me tell you, you thought you were getting beans and you got, anyway, it doesn't mix well with uh, sour cream. Anyway, so, and so, and so they would just, and you would see them, they start pushing it down, stretching the back, pushing it down. And we literally couldn't carry these two bags walking out. Because we were giving ourselves to the ministry and these ladies, by way of God's nudging and leading, were making sure that we had it pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And they would always, then they would slip me some little things to carry, you know, in my, in my back pocket or something so no one could see it. You know, if they had any gum that had come in or something like that. And you never, you never knew. If you've never been to a food pantry, if you've never been poor, you, didn't, you don't know what you're going to get from week to week. You're like, we got ramen noodles this week. Yes. Or whatever it may be. And I understood that concept because of that life experience. That if you give, God will be sure that it's given back to you. I don't like these seven drills either. But I want to still be standing when everyone else has fallen. I want to still be in love with Jesus when everyone else is bitter because life didn't go the way they thought it should go. Just because they hit some tough times. And I want you to be doing the same. Would you stand with